AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey everybody, welcome to Movie Crush, Friday Filmmaker Series, and I am very excited because I am starting off a Filmmaker Series with one of, well, for two reasons, because I love the Coen Brothers, maybe more than any other filmmakers, and I love my guest, Ben Harrison, maybe more than any other podcaster. Yes! (laughs) In your face, other podcasters. Well, I'm having Adam on next week, so I'll say the same thing about him. (laughs) So Ben uh, Harrison, you might recognize from previous episodes with Friendly Fire, uh, which is his war movie podcast he does with Adam Pranica and John Roderick on the Max Fun Network. And he also does, and this is where he really made his name as a podcaster, with The Greatest Generation podcast, also on the Max Fun Network. And yeah. what else? You got another Star Trek thing you're doing, right? Yeah, we have. Uh, so there's the new Star Trek show, uh, Star Trek Discovery, and we have a second podcast uh, that's kind of in the greatest gen family, mm-hmm. but it's called The Greatest Discovery, and uh, that's going to be the the show that covers all of the new Star Trek shows that are coming out because there's like five different things in production now. Oh, that's good news for you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's gone from being a finite resource to an infinite resource. Yeah, I remember talking to you and Adam about that because I don't know that world, and I was like, uh, "Aren't you guys eventually going to not have a job?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really painted ourselves into a corner. I mean, we started the Greatest Generation thinking it was just kind of training wheels, and we were going to like see if we enjoyed working together, and then and and then come up with a real idea, right? But, 
that one uh, that one caught on, and uh, you know when people connect with something, and and w- I mean I think they connected with it because we were having so much fun, sure, making it that uh, they you know we were just like all right let's just do this. Well, dude, I just subscribed to Greatest Gen. Uh, as you know, I don't know anything about Star Trek. I'm not going to watch it, but I like listening to you guys. <laughs> and, I, and I figure if I can listen to Friendly Fire episodes of movies I haven't seen, then by God, yeah. I can certainly listen to YouTube knuckleheads talk about Star Trek. I uh, One of my favorite kinds of listeners is the people that are like, I don't even really care that much about what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, this is the best. <laughs> so... Um, I've done different things with these filmmaker series. Like sometimes we bounce around, but you had the idea to just kind of start at the beginning, which I think is a great move with Blood Simple uh, from 1984. And this is a movie that I've seen a bunch of times. Um, Saw it for the first time in college on VHS when, you know, I worked at a, like the super cool indie video store. And that's where I really got turned on to a lot of cool stuff. This being one of them. But, dude, I remember in 1984, uh, when I was 13, I remember seeing this uh, the ad in the newspaper, in the movie section of the newspaper, and just <laughs> something about those high heels and the boots and the gun of that original ad in the poster. I, for some reason, yeah. it just stands out to me. I remember seeing it. Didn't know what it was, but I was like, hmm, what's that all about? It, it's a very iconic image. It's It's one of those... You know, it's one of those like early indie films where it was kind of, kind of in the in the vein of some of the things that happened in the '90s, where it it, it pushed indie films into the mainstream a little bit. For sure. But like working with a with no budget to make a poster, like that's as good a poster as you could come up with. Oh yeah, and like, what's your history with? Well, first of all, what's your history of this film, and then what's your history, or maybe the other way around? With the Coen Brothers in general, like how does that figure into your life? I, th- I mean, the Coen Brothers are are definitely among my favorite filmmakers out there. Um, this is a film that I don't know as well as some of their other work, but uh, I, in rewatching it, I was really delighted at how much how many threads I saw that they are still, you know, things that they're still interested in. Oh man, it's all over interrogating. the place. <laughs> yeah, and and uh and and like I I read um I was trying to find it on my bookshelf and I think I it may have accidentally gone into storage at some point, but I have I have a book called My First Movie and it's oh, yeah. just a series of interviews with filmmakers and they talk a bunch about making making this movie in that book. And, uh, and it's, it was one of the most inspiring reads in the book for me. Cause they just, it, it was real bootstrap, you know, they just like, oh yeah. I think, I think that, I think the anecdote that they tell is that they got a directory of like Jewish dentists uh-huh. in Manhattan <laughs> yeah. and just kind of like called, just cold called and went around and like they had a little 16 millimeter projector and they'd shot a scene or two and they said like hey like we're trying to make a feature film would you you know give us 8000 bucks and and they just did that you know enough times to get a budget yeah did you um they ended up i think they went to minnesota and new york and i think one other place and you're right there were like dentists and attorneys and these just professional people with money 
And what they shot was a trailer, which you can actually watch. Have you you haven't seen that? Uh, I have not. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's um, I, I came across some random article that linked to it. And it's on Vimeo, and it's uh, it has Bruce Campbell in it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. He plays. You can't even really see his face. He's but in they, the Francis McDormand role. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's in the Dan Hedaya role as Marty. Oh, wow. Um, but they only shoot a couple of scenes. They shoot basically like. The scene, uh, kind of recreate the scene of the car uh, stopped in the desert, which right. we'll, we'll get to that sequence, but one of the best in the movies. And Bruce Campbell stumbles out of the back and, like, pukes up blood. Uh, and they have some other guy playing, um, you know, playing the lead dude. But, but yeah, that was good <laughs> enough. I encourage yeah. people to go check it out because when you see that and you think, like, would I give $8,000 <laughs> in 1984 for looking at this? Right. But they I did. Mean, they got... Seven hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, which is half the money they needed, but enough to get started. Yeah, and uh, it, I think uh, I think the budget was a million and a half. Yeah, and they made three million dollars, so double your money. Yeah, and they said Not everyone too- kind of you know, usually you you invest in an indie film and it's just like say goodbye to that money forever. But they said that everybody that invested made their money back and more. Wow. I, uh, as somebody who is working on an indie documentary right now, I uh, wish that was a reasonable promise I could make to the people who have given me money. Not for a documentary. No. <laughs> we all know how that works. Um, but the cool thing is they uh, – so many firsts. Like this was Fran McDormand's first role. She was – I think they shot it. She was like 26. Um, yeah. She's a baby. The, it's amazing. Oh, I mean she looks so young. Um, the Coens, not only their first movie – and Barry Sonnenfeld's first movie as a, as a DP, but um, Joel, and this is probably in your book too, because I think it was an excerpt from that. They said that they had never set foot on a professional movie set until they were shooting <laughs> their own movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, there's like, uh, I, I mean, I think that the the only way to talk about that is just chutzpah. Like they, yeah, they knew that they were going to be good at this and mm-hmm. set about to do it and and they knocked it out of the park like and Barry Sonnenfeld too like it's it's beautifully shot for the uh you know like low budget that they had they didn't have a ton of money to to light this thing so yeah. it, it feels like a film noir in a lot of ways which and like the reason film noirs are all so dark is that usually the lighting was too expensive to do extensively Yeah, and that was kind of the deal. They said that they didn't have any great passion for film noir, but they they wanted to write. And this is really smart and good advice for for up and coming filmmakers. You know, have ambition, but do something that's doable. And they, you know, they said film noir really lends itself to that because there's never more than three or four characters. They're always sort of contained. Yeah, Uh, you don't have to travel a lot. And most of this movie kind of takes place in the bar or in rooms or just like on the side of the highway. Yeah, or like if if two people are in a car, like that opening conversation, yeah. where they're in the car, like God, it's so cool. It it's a parked car, and they just are dumping enough water on the wind <laughs> yeah. windscreen to to obscure that fact, and then waving flashlights at the window to yeah. simulate passing cars. It looks so cool though, because there was so much rain, like you couldn't see anything, and then when the the car, you know, the car would pass, it just like temporarily blinds you as a viewer. It's also like a super tight script, and I think that that's another great like op- opening, you know, first film 
standard to set is like this this script is a Swiss watch. Like yeah. that gun, like the math on that gun is so brilliantly done all <laughs> yeah. throughout the movie. Like you see the three bullets in the ch- in the in the chamber. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know gun terms. Chamber? Ch- yeah, sure. The the wheel. It's the spinny part. The spinny wheel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you see the three bullets. You you know, like you know that one went in to uh, to Morty. You know that one went off when uh, when John gets kicks the kicks the gun accidentally. You oh, know man. that there's that third. You know that the it's been misfired five times when Morty's in. Uh, sorry, not Morty. Marty. Yeah, he plays a guy named Morty in another movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, when uh, when you know when Marty's in the in his shallow grave, he he squeezes the trigger five times. So you know that when she's in the apartment at the end, like when she pulls the trigger, a bullet is going to come out of that gun. Yeah, yeah, and you're always thinking about how many bullets are in that gun. Like yeah. that, that's one of the genius. Um, parts about it. Roger Ebert had this to say many years ago, which I think is pretty cool and really kind of streamlines with what you're saying there. Uh, The genius of Blood Simple is that everything that happens seems necessary. The movie's a blood-soaked nightmare in which greed and lust trap the characters in escalating horror. The plot twists in upon itself. Characters are found in situations of diabolical complexity, and yet it doesn't feel like the film is just piling it on. Step by inexorable step, Logically, one damn thing leads to another. <laughs> and that's kind of the deal. You know, it's like it's a very simple movie. It's a movie about a man whose wife is cheating on him. So he hires someone to kill him. And that guy double crosses them. And no one knows fully what's going on until it's you know resolved in the end. Right. And it, like there are a couple of moments where characters just talking to each other about what's going on might solve a lot of their problems but the but the characters are so like closed off and emotionally unavailable and and that's like well established before any of the like hey if you could just be open with each other yeah stuff is a problem that's a good point because one of the things like i've seen this movie a bunch and it does the one thing that annoys me so much in so many other movies which is, and Emily and I are constantly yelling at movies where you're like, just <laughs> say the words and solve everything. And n- neither one, Fran McDormand or John Getz, it would have been so easy just to say like, it, you know, I killed Marty or I didn't kill Marty. <laughs> right. But it didn't like bother John, me in this movie. It doesn't bother because John Getz's character is such a, he's such a broken guy. Like he's he's in this passionate affair with uh with Frances McDormand where they're like pulling over to stop at a motel to have sex. Yeah. But then when she leaves her husband and comes to his house, he's like, what do you want? The bed or the couch? Yeah. <laughs> like what? Well, it's interesting. I think that's a good point because what I never really fully, fully got, even after I'd seen it so many times until last night, was I I don't think they were having some long term affair. I think that might have been the first time they had sex. Right. If I'm not mistaken, like he was giving her a ride. She was complaining about her marriage and they end up kind of pulling over and doing it, which is a big deal because they're not they don't fully trust each other. I don't think. Yeah, it's I also like I think that this this watch through was the first time I I really wrapped my mind around what a misconception he's under for the whole second half of the movie, because when he comes back and finds Dan Hedaya dead in the office. He 
leaps to the conclusion that she's the one that yeah. shot him. And and I think that like I was, you know, just not not sophisticated enough to like project that into his head. Uh-huh. But but it's all it's 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 everything that he does after that is motivated by thinking like, oh my god, like Abby Abby did a murder, and I'm gonna clean it up and cover it up for her. This is like a this is like a an act of love for him. Totally, man. Uh, that's the whole driving force of the second half of the movie is that he thinks she has killed him and she starts to think that he's sort of lost it because the bartender guy at one point even is like, you know, stay away from Ray. He's lost it. And she's yeah. like, I think Marty might be dead. Like, she doesn't even know he's dead. He he almost starts to, like, resent her in a way because he's like, God, like, what a what a horrible thing I have had to do on your behalf. Yeah, for sure. It is and, horrible. Uh, so much blood. Yeah. I mean, and I think anybody that's in a long-term relationship knows the horror of having to clean up your <laughs> wife's murder victim <laughs> crime scene. It's pretty bad. Yeah, it's tough. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bear Premium Plus Paint is here to make it happen. And it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window, Feel the warmth and comfort of a spring sunrise with shades like coral cloud and dark crimson. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with a durable finish that resists dirt and grime to last all season. And let your creativity bloom with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. What did you think? I mean, we need to talk about M. Emmett Walsh, which is, he, you know, he's one of the great all-time character actors. And this, he's been a great, he's been great in a lot of stuff, but 
for my money, this may be the top top of the chain yeah. for him. He's great, and and really like, I mean, there are so many like I th- I feel like he and Dan Hedaya are are both like the kind of actor that can get real. Like my my wife will never see Dan Hedaya as anything but Cher Horowitz's dad from Clueless. Yeah, I have a hard time seeing him as anything other than Nick Bonacani from Cheers. Right, right. My my association with him is the captain of the ship in Alien Four, because <laughs> that was the first big thing I saw him. Wow. But, but uh, but like, but he and M. Emmett Walsh like are are actors like that where you. You know, M.M. Walsh. I feel like the it's um, uh, Blade Runner is is like m- like the first thing I think of when I see him. But like he's done a million movies. Like his his, his IMDb is stacked, and he's been he's been a great like kind of cowboy guy. But he's done a ton of other weird roles. Yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. Um, that opening narration and just that voice. The world is full of complainers. <laughs> Fact <laughs> is, nothing comes with a guarantee. Like yeah. there's so many, like the the assured not not just the tightness of the script, but the assuredness of this script coming out of right. two guys who wrote it when they were probably 24, 25 years old is just nuts. Voiceover is a a real, you know, it's a real minefield for young filmmakers, and the Coen Brothers have always known how to use it. Totally. It it reminds me so much of the voiceover that opens No Country for Old Men, which is a similar like kind of Texas yeah. lawman voiceover that is almost incidental, but also like ties a bunch of stuff up. And I just I, I love that like kind of the third guy on the call sheet is is the one doing the voiceover. Oh yeah. You know? It's never a main character, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and so many times, like you were talking about the things they would revisit. Like we'll we'll pepper those in, but I, I like I think I lost count how many times I said Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> I know from those the opening shots of the road to like you know the scene where he's uh, pulling the body into the car when the truck is approaching. That's like straight out of Fargo, or the other way around, right. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, the, just the timing of like, oh, I got to get this body back in this car so this trucker doesn't notice that I'm <laughs> in the process of hiding it. Yeah, man. And just, you know, jealous husband, cheating wife, double crossing. Um, it, it's like they're so upset, uh, you know, blackmail, hired killers. It's it's almost like Fargo feels almost like a remake at times of Blood Simple in some ways. Yeah. What did you make of the kind of constant cutaways to ceiling fans in this movie well the, you know that sound boom 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 i think yeah, they, that they had they a use lot it, don't they oh yeah and it, you know no ceiling fan on earth makes that sound um they i think and, it had they, a lot and to they'll do like with it. use it to like get from one room to another it'll be like at the bar it'll it'll like the camera will pan up to the ceiling fan and then it'll pan down from the ceiling fan and it's it's at ray's house or something yeah which is sort of i mean that's sort of student filmy like I know some of this movie makes them cringe. Like they've talked about how, you know, rough and embarrassing it is at times. But I don't know. I see it as everyone's got a first movie, and you sometimes you do some 
obvious things like that. Like there's, they didn't do this shot, but when I did my short little film school stint, the uh, the teacher was like, "Don't ever ever do the shot where someone walks straight into camera and then immediately cuts to their back walking away from camera." <laughs> and like Scorsese does that in Cape Fear. It's like, "Fuck you, man." <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, like I, I feel like there are filmmakers that like to do the the corny, obvious film school shot just to just to kind of like wink at the at the audience. But uh, and and I also I feel like you, yeah, you as an artist are always self-critical. Like I'm this documentary I'm working on. I'm we're in the edit right now, and most of the stuff in it I shot five or six years ago now, and I feel like I've grown so much as a filmmaker just in that five or six years that like looking at a looking at some of these at these shots is like embarrassing and cringy now and and like nobody else has ever seen it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just it's just like a part of the process. You like you grow to disdain yeah. your your earlier work. <laughs> or whatever you happen to be working on. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was another thing that they did, another recurring thing. I'm not sure if you noticed, but the VW Beetle. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah, what the PI but... drove in Lebowski. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the private eye thing in, in just by itself is like such a funny obsession to have. Yeah. But uh, but I feel like they, <laughs> they really have it. Oh, for sure. I mean, how many other movies feature PIs or divorces or couples, you know? I mean, they made a whole movie about divorce and couples going at each other. Yeah, yeah. They're just the best. I also like that, like, Frances McDormand is not... She She's she's a really a very strong character, you know? Like, she's never, like, the, the damsel in distress. Like, I yeah. think a lot of the men in the movie are trying to make her that. And she is, like, breaking fingers and kicking balls and, like, stabbing guys in the hand. <laughs> like, oh Jesus! Yeah, like she, yeah. I mean, she, she didn't set out to do violent stuff, but she's <laughs> going to protect herself at any cost. And oh uh, yeah, I mean, the scene where he's he he goes to basically try and kidnap her away. Um, first of all, it's a great setup seeing the dog, the German Shepherd, in the corner. Yeah, like right before he attacks her. But you know, she fucking kicks his ass. It's great, and he vomits in the front lawn because she racked him <laughs> so bad. Yeah. <laughs> One thing we talk about a lot on Friendly Fire, because because we watch so many war movies, there are a lot of vomit scenes. And, oh, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the mouthful of Campbell's soup is uh, yeah. is something I've railed <laughs> against in the past. And and this is, like, definitely that. Just, like, some, uh, I don't know, cream of mushroom soup that he spits out on the, <laughs> on the grass. Well, that that's a great moment, though, because he uh, – remember, he gets his ass kicked and his finger bitten – he gets in the car, and you know that's when John Getz uh, comes outside, and they're standing together. And he sp- and Marty speeds off in one direction, <laughs> and then you hear it's such a Coen Brothers kind of joke. He in a serious scene, he's, he you hear the brakes squeak, yeah, and then he comes back the other way, and John Getz goes, "Would have liked to have seen his face when he realized it was a dead end." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, I I wondered in that moment if that's. If that was actually a dead end street, like did they did they find that location oh, and I then don't know. put something into the script, or 
because you don't actually see the end of the street ever. So yeah, it could have just been in the script from <laughs> Jump. But it's such a, it's just like it's it's hard to imagine thinking of a little moment like that. But it really makes the world feel real. Yeah, and I think that's just sort of the secret that they had early on in their careers. I mean, in their mid twenties, coming out of film school, to have the, you know, the foresight to do like tongue in cheek and not take themselves so seriously and. That's when you're taking yourself really seriously is when you make your first film, you know? Yeah. And they always had a sort of playful attitude about it all. The <laughs> I love the uh, the dangling uh, babe in uh, in M.M. Walsh's uh, window. Oh, yeah. He, like, pulls the little <laughs> chain down and the boobs light up. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, that is definitely not a pretentious film snob move to have one of your characters do that. No. No, for sure. <laughs> And just again with the writing, like some of the some of my favorite lines in their movies are in this one. Um, early on, when Marty's talking to uh, M. Emmett Walsh, and he says, "Don't come around here no more. If I need you, I know what rock to turn over." <laughs> <laughs> and then M. Emmett Walsh is just constantly laughing at everything. You know, he's basically being called a scumbag, and yeah. he, he doesn't get mad or anything. You know, when he says he's going to cut his head off. <laughs> and he gives him a few reasons, and it's one of my favorite lines in any of their movies. He goes, "Give me a call if you ever want to cut off my head. I can always crawl around without it." <laughs> so great, man! How do you write that line in your mid twenties? How do you know that he's gonna laugh as the last thing? Like, yeah, as he's as he's bleeding out on the floor. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, it's one of the best last lines of a movie ever. I mean. We don't have to wait to get there. We can go ahead and just say <laughs> yeah. at the end. It's so great because the whole, not twist, but just the whole, I mean, I guess it is a twist in the end, but the whole conceit of this movie is that Fran McDormand doesn't know that he even exists. Right. And I mean, like, it's, it's like the 10th misunderstanding, uh, you know, on on a a perfect Swiss watch of misunderstandings. Yeah, but so she's killing who she, she thinks through is the her door, husband. She says, I'm not afraid of you, Marty. <laughs> so great. And he laughs and says, well, ma'am, if I see him, I'll sure give him the message. <laughs> <laughs> like, as he's dying out, he realizes that she thinks he's Marty and, like, has a laugh about it. It's so fucking great. Yeah. I feel like they like one of them got down on the floor of a bathroom and looked up under a sink to 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 get that too like the just like that yeah, perspective what, what would it be like to be bleeding out on the floor of a bathroom what would you be looking at yeah. what would what would you see and it's the condensation on the pipes under the sink yeah is it going to drip uh, it's uh i heard a fly buzz when i died did you ever yeah. re- read that one i think it was a poem right Oh, I, uh, I'm not familiar. Yeah, there was some poem. I'll, uh, I'll have to look it up and send it to you. But it was, it was one of the great poems that, like, we read in English class, and I, it was called "I Heard a Fly Buzz When I Died." And it's just that, that thing. Like, you're dying. You never think about the last thing you hear may not be your, you know, beloved's voice, but it may be the fucking hum of a fluorescent bulb, or like right. somebody farting in the other room or something. <laughs> it just really <laughs> Boy, makes, that it makes seem me... so small. That makes me think of how many times M. Emmett Walsh has a fly on him in the film. Yeah. 
It's a bunch. It, it happens in like two or three <laughs> scenes where yeah. he's talking to somebody and there's a fly just like crawling around on his hair or something. Were those mistakes? I mean, I think that – I think it's one of those things where you can't control for it. So if you're shooting and there's a fly on somebody and you like it, you keep that take. Right, but they didn't like have a fly wrangler and, and put honey <laughs> on his temple or anything, right? I can't imagine. Because he doesn't it react happened, to it. it yeah, and it, it it's it's one of those things like the – like like a, a real pro actor will just power through. But, uh, but also there's a scene – where Marty is out uh, outside the bar, uh, sitting there when when John Getz comes up to him, and there's like a like one of those mosquito lamps, yeah. shocking mosquitoes behind him. Oh yeah, that's and great, a bug zapper. And and they somehow got this bug zapper going, like to punctuate what Marty is saying. Yeah, in a way that I I feel like that you could control for. You could like flick a you know goober sure onto the onto the light or something. <laughs> But like the like, it's interesting. I I didn't know the association with that poem, and and I feel like that's that must be intentional. Now that I think of it, maybe. I mean that that scene is really intense, and it's totally punctuated by that bug zapper going off. Um, that's the you know what's funny scene, right? Yeah, you, yeah. You know what's really funny, and he just keeps getting more and more intense, and he basically is like, and the, you know you've seen this in movies before, but like. The cuckolded man is like, you think you're fucking special. Like, she'll, right. do, she'll do the same thing to you. And right after that scene is when he comes home and is like, you know, you're going to sleep on the couch. Like, I think he takes a little bit of that to heart. Right. Come on, yeah, this, come he, on this property again. I'll be forced to shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> There's such a, uh, I feel like no matter what, there's always like a New York guy in a Texas movie. <laughs> Like there's so many, so many actors that you find like just showing up in in a in a western that are like, yeah, yeah I'm in the west, <laughs> I'm in the west here. Yeah, it's funny because I think I even remember the first times I saw this, thinking that's a weird thing to have Dan Hedaya in this movie because yeah. he's such a sort of Brooklyn greaseball. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> out in the middle of like West Texas or whatever. But you know, who knows? Maybe he was a transplant. It was good stuff, though. He's he's was really Cheers, good in this. Was he already famous for Cheers when this came on? I don't, I, I don't have my Cheers timeline 80, figured well, out. If this was 84, which they shot it in 82, I think. I don't think so, man. It, it wow. would have been at the very beginning if that's when Cheers started. Yeah. That's so... It's so interesting to think about that, like... Because I, I think that that is where the majority of Americans became familiar with his his work and oh, yeah. and and I wondered watching it this time because I've been like rewatching Cheers with my wife and <laughs> I wondered watching it this time do people just see this guy as Carla's husband I do <laughs> Emily sees him as the clueless dad just like yeah. just like your wife and I see uh, I see him as Nick Bonacani he had that look <laughs> in Cheers wasn't that the deal he had like yeah. this, this sexy look that he would give her and put her under a spell <laughs> yeah and and definitely like the same like kind of like Hey, I know it's the '80s, but I'm still wearing like kind of a '70s shirt with <laughs> yeah. with the buttons undone to my navel. God, he is a hairy man. Oh man, he is hairy. That one, um, the swimsuit photo, photo. is unreal. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really corny looking photo too. I think they were had their tongue in cheek on that one too. Yeah, yeah. 
there's so many great oh, little so sort good. of jokes like that, half jokes that the Coen brothers throw in there. So um, the scene that follows when he says, you know, I'll be forced to shoot you is when they first set up Marty um, kicked back in his chair with his boots up. And, yeah. And the bartender comes in and goes, Marty, I thought you were dead. And that's, you know, that's how he dies. And like that, that shot of him just sort of not moving in that chair. Uh, I wonder how, how many hours he like sat there in that chair like that. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, the office is such a great, it's such a great set. It's got so many, like there's, you know, two points of uh, ingress and there's, like all these dynamic versions of the lighting that we get to see, you know, whether it's night or day, there's, you know, the window into the, into the rest of the bar, there's the safe, like eventually there are fish and a glass of milk on the table, which stay there for days and days. And you get like the sense of how, how oppressive it would be in there. Yeah. And, you know, like nobody's, nobody ever like winces at the smell or anything. You don't, they're not, beating you over the head with it, but you just can't help but imagine it when you see those fish. Yeah. And that, like, the crust starting to build up on the sides of the milk glass. What is, what, what is Marty doing just, like, knocking off work and having himself a glass of milk? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who does that? That was a little weird, too. Yeah. It, it, uh, there were a few things like that that make me think Cohen brothers just have, I don't know, inside jokes between the two of them that they do. Because there's yeah. also milk in um, – doesn't Anton Chigurh drink milk? He does. Oh, yeah. And No Country for Old Men. Yeah. And the dude is always looking for milk because he's trying to make white Russians. Right. You know, he's like smelling in the milk carton. <laughs> oh, man. I can't Buying wait to talk about the, Lebowski. At the Vons. <laughs> when he writes the check for like 69 cents or something at Vons. <laughs> <laughs> we got to keep our pants on, though. That's coming. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we'll what is your what is your take on um, Visser, Emmett Walsh's character, double crossing him? Like, is the idea you think that he can just kill him, and that's only one person he's killed, and he removes any you know anyone who knew that he was involved? I, I kinda, Instead of just killing that, the, you know Fran McDormand and and Getz. Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's the the idea. Like he sees this as a a cleaner way to ten thousand dollars, right? Because you know, killing two people is more than twice as complicated as killing one person. <laughs> I thought a lot about this, Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it says in the handbook. Keep in mind, keep in mind, <laughs> keeping two killing two people is twice as complicated. Um, so he fakes these photos. In whatever way you would do that in 1984, like there's no yeah. Photoshop. I guess he colored him in or something. Yeah, yeah. I wondered about that too. But you get to see the stack as he like as he refined it when he's burning them at the end. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it showed it in progress, right? Right. Yeah, and there, and there's so much like fun photograph stuff in this movie. Like all the photographs of of uh, Dan Hedaya and, and Francis McDormand as a couple. As, yeah, as, you know, as as a happy couple, one thing that like maybe strains credulity is the idea that it, they had a a happy relationship at a, for a time. Like, yeah, I agree. They they don't you don't see that in them necessarily in this film. Like, oh yeah, well they're mad at each other now, but they used to really love each other. Yeah, you don't see that because she's this really young, pretty um, sort of pure type, 
and he's just this fucking scumball grease bag. Yeah. Grease bag scumball, whichever way you want to say it. <laughs> and it's hard to even imagine them together at all, much less like happy and in love. The photos are like the only way you can get to an idea of of their marriage having been happy. But I wondered also like, I mean, like she's not we don't really get that much characterization with her. Like we don't know if she has a job or has ever you know, has you know, gave up dreams to be with him. Yeah. Like we see their house and it's pretty nice. It seems like he's got quite a bit more in the way of resources than anyone else in the movie. Like he's he's able to put a hand to ten thousand dollars. Like that's a pretty big deal. And they and they they do seem to have a comfortable life. So it's it's not inconceivable that there was kind of a a social climbing element to their relationship. Yeah, I think he was he's the bar owner that, you know, has more money than the bar patrons. Right. You know, that old that old deal. Um because he's he's hitting on the girl in that one part. It's actually one of my favorite little uh winks as well as when the blonde <laughs> is at the bar and he's just immediately hitting on her and she says he's an old she's an old friend of the bartender. Yeah. And then the end of the story, you know, it's clear that they had just met that night. Right. Right. <laughs> And I love how, like, directly she shuts him down, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, he's kind of he's, he's kind of the, the scumbag that's gotten used to getting his way because he's a little bit richer than everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, for really, sure. Uh, it, it, you know, and, and turns out to just be, like, a, a raging misogynist who really resents everybody that doesn't give him exactly what he wants. Yeah, you get that idea, for sure. Um well, I mean, let's talk about the burying alive sequence. That whole sequence, basically, from when Marty goes to get his back pay, I guess. I mean, not Marty, but um, but Ray goes to get his back pay, which is, I assume, yeah. is what he's doing. All he right. wants is he's, his uh, two He's going weeks. to go liberate his back pay from the, <laughs> from the cash register. Right, which is not there. But that whole sequence from when he sees him dead and he kicks the gun, thinks Abby kills her, or killed him and and tries to cover it up to to the end where he ends up burying him alive. Like that sequence, right. the first time I saw it just blew me away. Yeah. It's it's so harrowing. It's like the whole it's like the middle half of the movie almost. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things where you're they they kind of misdirect you enough times that you're never sure that Marty is dead entirely. Oh yeah. It seems like he could it, it seems like he could come back at come back to life at any moment. And and he does. Like he's getting covered in dirt when he pulls the gun out of his pocket. Yeah. Which like I guess Ray put there just to like make the murder weapon disappear also. I guess. I mean, I'm not even sure he fully remembered it was in his pocket because he just kind of stuck it in there to make it easier to carry him, I think. Right. But that's the whole yeah. horror movie motif is the body that won't die. And they get away with doing that in this little indie kind of Texas thriller, film noir. <laughs> but it's, I mean, you know, their connections with Sam Raimi were all over this movie too. Yeah. Because uh, Joel, I think, worked as assistant editor on Evil Dead. And Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. He was, they were old, you know, filmmaking buddies. And they straight up used Raimi tricks more than once. Like the, the great shot early on when the camera's going down the bar 
and there's the drunk passed out, and it goes up and over his head and back down onto the bar. Yeah. It's like straight up Sam Raimi. I think they put the camera on like a board or a bed sheet or something and just lifted it over by hand. (laughs) Something Raimi, like he used to attach cameras to boards and have people run with it, you know, all the time, very low to the ground. That was one of his, you know, big techniques. That's rad. The uh, that whole scene also like really sells how stunned Ray is. Like he he is doing this as an act of of love for for Abby, but he's he's also shocked. And yeah, one of the ways that that really plays for me is that he is not practicing good fingerprint hygiene. No. Like he didn't <laughs> walk into this expecting to be in a crime scene, and so he's like touching stuff. And yeah, it's not. It's not like super, they, they don't beat you in the head with it, but you, they do go close on his hand, like touching stuff around the room. Oh, yeah. And I think in later movies, they do a lot of like, here's when the police show up stuff. Yeah. But, all you, but like we've all seen enough, you know, crime shows and stuff to to like know the implications of this. Like he he is suspect number one when whenever the cops get involved on the, on this issue and... Uh, and he is like touching the safe. He's touching the post. He's touching the gun. <laughs> it's yeah, but a big problem. <laughs> this movie sort of now that now that you mentioned that, like it kind of exists outside the law. It feels like like yeah. it, at no point do you think a cop is going to show up ever. Right. Like right. he may be caught by a trucker on the road. Um, I guess in Fargo it was. Well, no, that wasn't a cop either. That was just a passerby that passed by on the highway. Remember when right. they when the when they saw them doing basically the same thing uh, right, with right. Peter Stormare, but um, yeah, you you never get and this is sort of that cool film noir thing where people are being bad and there's no law around to stop it. Tommy Lee Jones is nowhere in sight. <laughs> he is definitely not anywhere in sight. Um, so he's, you know he's burying him alive though in that one sequence. And the thing that really got me was when he pulled the gun out how non-reactive gets is and how so much tension is there because you've counted the bullets but there's one in the chamber right somewhere yeah like he could have been killed and he doesn't like move out of the way or like leap at him he just very gingerly takes it out of this dying man's hands who can barely even squeeze the trigger you know he's squeezing the trigger with his middle finger because his oh was it pointer finger oh that's right uh, is in the splint yeah did you put your finger up the wrong person's ass? <laughs> Another great line from the movie. <laughs> yeah, like goes up to make out point to plot on a yeah <laughs> on a murder <laughs> with M. Emmett Walsh. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh man. Uh, I wanted I wanted there to be a second walk of shame when he got out of the car with M. Emmett Walsh and walked back, and people go like, "What were you doing in there with him?" <laughs> Did you notice um, Holly Hunter on the message machine? Oh no! Is that is that who that was? Yeah, there was a phone message at one point. It was Holly Hunter because they were old friends. I think Fran McDormand and Holly Hunter were roommates, or maybe she knew maybe she knew Joel and Ethan because uh, I think they had already been friends or something. Because this is where Fran and Joel like met and fell in love, basically. Right. Yeah. Which is a very sweet story. I read about it actually. She said it's that really sweet. She's... Hard to imagine not falling in love with Frances McDormand. Oh man, totally. Um, she showed up and had one book to read, 
and asked him if he had any recommendations. And apparently he brought in a box of books like Raymond Chandler and all this sort of like, you know, pulp crime stuff. And she oh, said, cool. <laughs> what should I read? And he said, read The Postman Always, uh, Always Rings Twice. And she said, that book is so fucking hot. And she said, so I read it. And we decided he I asked him if he wanted to come over and discuss the book. And for three nights, she said, we sat up drinking hot chocolate and just talking about this book. And she said it was wow. so fucking hot. And she said, the secret <laughs> is, she said, you got to keep it on the other side of the room for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so like they were into it but they didn't kiss they didn't do anything they just like sat there and talked and drank hot chocolate and talked about this book it's like a super <laughs> sexy book <laughs> wow I gotta read that book now yeah they're still together too which is great so she goes to the bar um, Emmett Walsh is spying on her she still doesn't know that he exists but yeah. um that's when you get uh, her coming back home and you get that great shot of the uh, the newspaper hitting the screen door. Right. That slow-mo shot. It's so cool. Just shocking when it happens because it's, it's, like, it's like the gunshot of a newspaper hitting the door. Yeah, but there's so many moments like that where it's just like, I don't know, Just I'm so impressed that these guys with no money – thought to do stuff like that. And that's the stuff that pushed it over the edge and made it win um, the jury prize at Sundance or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like these little things that these little bits of genius that they showed, like even though they didn't have any money, they could still think of a really clever, cool, effective shot like that. Yeah, it's a big deal to get into Sundance with a movie like this too because I think think mostly with those big festivals, they – they want to be the world premiere, and I'm pretty sure this premiered at Toronto International Film Festival. Yeah, but then like so so if you premiere at at one of the other big ones, usually you're like that was your film festival, right? And hopefully you get bought there. But uh, but yeah, the um, like getting to getting to like hit a couple of the big ones is is like a a really big deal, and I mean there are like. I mean, talking about just amazing shots that they got, like when when he leaves burying Dan Hedaya and he's just driving and, and there's just a shot out the front of the car and yeah. a huge flock of birds takes off. Oh, yeah. And and it's like, it's stunning. And then you see the shadows of the birds like course over the road like two beats later. And I don't know, like, I mean, that's just one of those things that you have to be really lucky to get, but, you know, right place, right time. And they got it. Yeah, these little happy accidents. Yeah. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bear Premium Plus Paint is here to make it happen. And it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. 
Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window, feel the warmth and comfort of a spring sunrise with shades like coral cloud and dark crimson. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with a durable finish that resists dirt and grime to last all season. And let your creativity bloom with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Um, there's a there's a great article uh, from shamefully from uh, Maxim magazine, <laughs> but um, it was from I read it for the articles. <laughs> I didn't know it was still around, but this is from 2015. It was written by a guy named Callum Marsh. How blood how blood simple started a 30 year Hollywood firefight, and it's a really cool article because it talks about 1982. He said that's when New Hollywood died. He's talk, um, he talks about One from the Heart from Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, they All Laugh from Bogdanovich, Heaven's Gate, like all these really expensive bombs yeah. that went out. And this is when the Coen brothers show up. And uh, there's a quote from it. He says uh, – he's talking about basically where art films fit in like in the time period. He said, you could make and in a small way circulate a thoroughly arty movie like Eraserhead or an unabashed genre picture like Night of the Living Dead or Halloween – but a weird movie right. about affairs and guns, a weird movie that was in essence still a thriller, there was no precedent. There was no Coen Brothers before there was Coen Brothers. <laughs> yeah. Like no one knew what to make of it. A, a, a category. Yeah, totally. I never really thought about it like that, but they are their own genre in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, I mean, a little less like specific than Wes Anderson, but in the same spirit where like you kind of know a lot of what it means to go out to a to see a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. Emily won't see him anymore because in almost every movie they harm animals for laughs. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They didn't in this movie. I think they didn't start until Raising Arizona when they started blowing up bunnies and lizards in the <laughs> in the desert. But almost yeah. almost every single film of theirs, whether it's Oh Brother Art they're all when they're shooting the cows to, you know, No Country for Old Men, Killing Dogs. They do it, and it's always, almost always for fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not a bad point. It's either Steve Buscemi or an animal that's getting it yeah. in almost every... <laughs> 
Coen Brothers movie. My buddy worked with him, and he's a huge fan, too. He finally worked with him on, um, I think, Hail Caesar. And I was like, what was it like? Was it just amazing? He was like, not really. He said it was kind of a bummer because he said they're just so focused and insular. And apparently I read um, behind-the-scenes stuff from Emmett Walsh how they would, apparently from the very beginning, they, they will go off and just huddle together the two of them and talk very quietly and figure stuff out and then wow. and then come back. And it's not like a real – it's not super inclusive and it's not like a fun light set. Uh, my friend said it's just very intense and very sort of workmanlike and they really, yeah. really, really know what they want and that's the only thing that they want. Yeah. I've read that they um, th- they couldn't share director credit for a long time because of yeah. some guild rule. And so like they're it's it's Joel Cohen is has director credit and Ethan has producer credit on this movie, but really they're both producing and directing. Yeah, that's that's always sort of been the deal. I think I'm not sure how many movies had to do like that, but it was definitely the first handful until they finally won their grievance and the DGA acknowledged like, yes, two people can direct a film. It it is possible for this to happen. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you know, you sort of get their point because it is such a, I mean, you've done it. It's a, you don't have to be an auteur, but it's usually a singular kind of vision. It's tough to co-direct, I would imagine. Yeah, it, it's so interesting that siblings wind up being co-directors Yeah, in in that way. Like, I, I, I feel like I get it. Like, even though I'm an only child, I can imagine that like somebody that you can trust that much is like maybe the only kind of person you could you could do something as intense as directing a film with. Yeah, and there's there's something about the sibling thing that there's no splitting it apart. Like, right? It even goes beyond trust. It's it's you and them against the world almost. It was just kind of the attitude you need when making a film. I think in a lot of ways, it's such an interesting thing to imagine being a young artist who is taking a one and a half million dollar bet on yourself. Yeah, and uh, you know, with other people's money, but like that's, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a big swing to take. And like a first film is like, I, you know, I wish I had a, a brother to, <laughs> to work on my documentary with, Yeah, you know, just uh, <laughs> like so, somebody to be my gym buddy. Like, and, and I have uh, great collaborators on the film, but yeah, yeah, we're all busy people doing other stuff also. And, yeah, it's just been it's been a side project, and uh, it's really it's really cool to imagine them just like getting this script and getting it just right, and then saying like, "Let's go out and make this thing." Yeah, and with so many first timers beyond Fran, um, I read another article where they said it was it was the Gaffer's first feature film, the sound uh, mixer and the sound team, the Boom Guys' first film, Barry Sonnenfeld's wow. first film. They, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. They just went out there. I think Sam Raimi helped out a lot with, uh, you know, because he had already made The Evil Dead at this point. Um, yeah. But that was... It does not feel like a first feature yeah. from a cinematography standpoint. Like, Barry Seidenfeld's work is really tight. Like, there are no, you know, they don't miss focus on on close-ups. Like, the the camera moves are all really good and, and well-justified. The, the framing and blocking is beautiful. Like there, it's it feels like a big movie. Yeah, he was no, um, famous for throwing up from nerves on the set, wow. 
And they wow. said, they said that during during the filming and during dailies, um, they counted that he puked eighteen times because <laughs> he was so nervous. I love it. And this is Barry Sonnenfeld. I mean, the guy ended up being like one of the great DPs and, you know, eventually like a really good director too. Yeah. That's pretty great. Um, so let's let's get to the end here with the um, the loft sequence, which is played out in very much a, like a Hitchcockian rear window sort of fashion. Yeah. It's so great. It's it's fantastic. And, and like the rest of the movie, it, it does such a great job of just de- like – you you've done all the math on how this on how this room works. You understand the the geography of the space. Yeah, you understand like like when he reaches out the window and finds the other window, it like it solves a puzzle. Like where did she go? Uh-huh. She went she went out the window and into that other window. Yeah, but you never see her do that. Yeah, that's true. They really like let you like like they're so confident in the math that they can let the audience do some of it themselves. Yeah, and they short, you know, they they very famously the director's cut of this movie was shorter than the original cut, hmm. which you just don't ever see, you know, director's cuts <laughs> yeah. usually like so much more indulgent. But they always thought it could have been tighter, and like they were just trimming scenes, and they ended up just trimming out like five minutes worth. Nothing. I don't think they even lost anything wholesale. They just like tightened the screws on it, which really, for young filmmakers like that, that shows a lot of poise to. Um, issue indulgence in favor of doing something shorter and tighter at 94 minutes or whatever it was. Yeah. And, and like, I think that like the most iconic shots in in the movie are those, are those bullet holes with light pouring through them. <sighs> that was in the trailer that they made. Um, they recreated that for the, for the movie. It looks so good. Yeah. And when he like punches through the wall. Yeah, man. God damn, it's great. I mean, what a, I could never think of something that great. Dude reaches around, opens another window. Oh. Sorry. That's all right. It's garbage day here. That's all right. I like a little guest appearance. I might even leave that in there. What's your dog's name again? (laughs) That's Darwin the dog. That's right, Darwin. Barking at the garbage truck outside. (laughs) But reaching around that window, opening the other one, getting that hand slam and knife into it, and you just like, can it... Like, my hand just started hurting describing it. I know, I know. It's so, so rough. My my wife had a a hand injury early in our in our relationship, and she was, like, uh, about ready to walk out of the room when that happened. Oh, did she watch it with you? <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> had she seen I mean, it before? She mostly looked at real estate on her phone. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> Boy, she and Emily are so much alike. <laughs> to be fair, I like looking at real estate, too, but, uh, you know. One of my yeah. passions, but still, um, got to get that Redfin app going <laughs> if we're watching TV. So yeah, stabbing through the hand, and then he's stuck there, and then the next thing, like Ebert was saying, like one thing logically leads to the next. It never feels yeah. indulgent at all. Yeah, yeah. He, he just starts shooting at her, and she's, you know, again, she doesn't run or hide in the corner. She just sort of stands there, kind of hoping yeah. that she doesn't get hit. I. I mean, it's like like no character is ever ducking or running in this movie. Yeah, like they for some reason are just too like. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if I understand why. I I don't disbelieve it though. I know. You know. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, pretty pretty amazing. Because that's something that would normally bother me too. 
is just run the fuck out of there. Like, there's something about this movie that makes me turn my brain off of, like, the logical thing for someone to do and just go with it. It's just so atmospheric and, like, draws you in. You're, it's almost like a trance. It's so slow and, you know, kind of quiet. Right. There's not much music. The score, oh, it was Carter Burwell's first score ever as well. Wow. Which, you know, they worked with him many times over the years. But, um, yeah, that score is just so simple. There's only one song in the movie, like popular song. Yeah, the uh, the four tops, right? Yeah, but you know the story there, right, with the I'm a Believer? Yeah. So the VHS version, uh, I don't know if, how the rights were working or not working, but they could not use the four top song. So when it oh. came out on VHS, it was, then I saw her face, now I'm a believer. <laughs> And oh, wow. I associate that. I never saw the VHS version. Well, that's all I saw. Like, the first four or five times I saw this movie. So oh, that's so it just... must have felt so wrong <laughs> to you to see really it. really weird. Yeah. But this yeah, is the I've, way I've they definitely... wanted it to be. Yeah. A couple a couple of times I've gotten a hold of, like, an early cut of a film that has, like, the temp tracking in it. And, yeah. like, you hear the, the songs that they had in the edit. Uh-huh. And... And occasionally songs that they fell in love with in the edit and then couldn't couldn't clear and uh and you know it it really changes a the tone of a movie like totally i mean like when when we were getting friendly fire ready to 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 launch our producer rob just found you know d- decided to put war what is it good for as our as our theme music yeah which is perfect and it was it was just like we were you know, getting it up on its feet, like making the show and seeing if we if we liked how it sounded and 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 liked it as a as a show. And when we heard that music, we were like, "God, that kicks so much ass! Like we have to have that song." But how could we ever clear it? Right. And fortunately, we were able to find a way to do it. Like we got in touch with the the label, and they like offered us like a very reasonable price to clear it, like in perpetuity as our. As our theme song. That's awesome. But like, I cannot imagine that show not with War What Is Good For as the theme song. No, there's no way because it's woven through the show too. It's not just at the beginning. Yeah. Like it and serves like, as all the ad stabs or whatever. And and anytime, anytime you do that in a film, it's the same thing. It's like it, like it affects so much about just the meaning of a scene. Yeah. Yeah, like you would probably be weirded out seeing it with... I'm a believer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like, they, uh, they use it The most times. beautiful girl in the world by <laughs> Prince. <laughs> Have you seen? <laughs> oh, man. That'd be really funny. But how it usually works is the, the song that people end up using is the one that becomes iconic, even if it wasn't the perfect song, you know, just because that's the one that they used. Yeah. Yeah. And and the and it works, you know. It's it works both ways, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, we kind of already talked about the end, you know. She she kills who she thinks is Marty through the door, and you know they don't even show again with the sort of restraint of not explaining things. They, I don't even think they show her reacting much to her hearing that voice. I think she hears the laugh. You see a little confusion wash over her face, but it's not, it's, it's yeah, but subtle. It's it. not like, she doesn't go, go like, huh? Right. 
<laughs> That's the thing, though. You're right. It's it's uh, it is all very subtle. There's yeah. it, 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 and that's where the movie ends with that drip down coming on him, and you yeah, get the, I, the feeling he's wondering if it's going to fall on him before he dies. I don't love that they rock the reels a little bit. Like they're definitely like looping the the droplet. Oh, like, were they playing on the on the edge of the pipe a little bit? Uh, it, it's forgivable. Like it's. But it, but as like the last shot, like just it, it bumped me a tiny bit, and I was, I was a little sad that it wasn't just perfect. Oh, I didn't notice. But, uh, so it was that little wiggle, that was the loop. Yeah, like they, 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 uh, you know, they play it back and forth a little bit oh. to, to extend how much time it spends. <laughs> I didn't even notice. About to fall. <laughs> gotcha. I did not notice that. I, I can picture you in your house, in. Uh, in L.A. going like, look, look, they're looping this thing. And she's like, on the My red, on the red from, app. Uh, yeah, a listing in San Pedro. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's all I got, man. You got anything else? I don't. Um, I, uh, I, re- I really enjoyed revisiting this film. It had been a long time since I'd seen it. And uh, I think the last time I saw it was just on a DVD in college. So... Um, really, uh, really fun one to revisit and, and really cool to, to see these guys kind of getting their first, their first reps as, as filmmakers. Oh yeah. Like just what a, what a great debut. I love one of my favorite things is seeing first films of great filmmakers. And I, I did cover bottle rocket in here with, with someone and I'd like to do more of those, but like the DNA of so many of their movies courses through this one, just from the shots to the score to the, you know, to the themes uh, and some of the characters even. It's really, really cool. It's, it's great. Uh, thank you so much for having me to to talk about it, man. Yeah, dude. I mean, a treat. are we, are we going to cover all of these movies? Hell yeah. I think we have to over time. I mean, it might take us a year. Yeah, or yeah. The, uh, the Cohen brothers have a pretty deep catalog at this point. Yeah, here's the thing, though. We, uh, I've already done Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing. Okay. Sadly, we could s- skip to Barton Fink. Then is that the next one? Yeah. Oh boy. Barton Fink, Hudsucker Proxy, and Fargo, the next three, and uh, and then Lebowski. God, I can't believe Fargo was that early. It seems like that seems so later Cohen's to me. Yeah, it's twelve years after Blood Simple, but uh, it's it's still it's closer to that than that than now. Yeah, yeah. Barton Fink, very big movie for me, uh, for a lot of reasons, which we'll talk about in a couple of months. <laughs> Looking forward to it. All right, thanks, Ben. And uh, if you haven't seen Blood Simple for, uh, fully, encourage you to go out and check it out. They have a Criterion edition that you can get on iTunes and I think elsewhere. Um, yeah, it's a nice transfer. I think it's sixty millimeter film, right? It's got to be. Uh they did a it, no. It's a it's thirty five millimeter oh, print that they scanned it from, and and they scanned it four K. But I don't think that that's available for digital download. I think it might be available on like Blu Ray or something. But um, but it's a it's a really nice print that they that they worked from, and they like re recolor graded it and stuff. And that was all supervised by Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah, so it's like. They really did it right. Awesome. All right, good stuff, Ben. Later, dude. Talk to you soon, brother. Bye. All right. 
Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.